0: Romans 10. So as we get started, I first want to ask a question, which is, how does a person get saved? How does a person get saved? Let's say you were put on the spot and had to answer that question for somebody. Maybe a friend comes to you and says, you know, like, I've been going through a tough season it's been challenging. I mean, 2020, right? Like, uh, what did my wife say the other day? 2020 has been a hot mess and a dumpster fire, was what she said. So, so somebody comes to you and says, my year has been a hot mess and a dumpster fire. I don't know what's going on. I, like, I don't know where truth and hope and I don't know what my future looks like. But I look at your life and I, I see something that, is, that seems to be different from my own. And like, what is that? imagine somebody comes to you and asks that question, and, and you see that for the incredible opportunity that it is. You don't shrug it off. You go, well, well, actually, let me, let me tell you about Jesus. Like, let me, let me share with you who he is and what he's done and the difference that that has made in my life. So I'm not perfect. I don't do everything perfectly like I don't I don't live in this like strange uh, oblivious state of joy but my life is definitely better now than it was before things are things have changed for me and and so you share your story with this friend and then at the end of that they say I want that how do I get that and you say Ugh how do you respond to that? How do I get that? You know, maybe you go, uh, well, I think uh, you, you, pray, you, you need to pray a prayer. And, and in your prayer, you need to say, God, I'm, I'm really sorry for the bad things I've done. And then you need to say, Jesus, I, I want you to come into my life. And your friend goes, oh, okay, cool. So I just pray that prayer and then I'm saved. Well, no, not exactly. Okay, on second thought, I think you need to get baptized. Oh, okay, so I need to like, I need to go to a church. I need to, I guess, talk with somebody and schedule a time to get baptized. And then I'll be saved? Uh, well, no, that, that's, not really, that's not really the whole story either. Um, you know, I heard a verse once that says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Oh, okay, so, so what does that mean? How, how do I do that? Does that, does that mean pray? I, I thought just praying the prayer like, doesn't save me. Guys, I think American evangelical culture is infinitely confused about this topic. We've been journeying through the book of Romans, and, and what we've seen is that the work of salvation is actually God's work. Which shouldn't come as a surprise. We don't save ourselves. I don't have the power to save me. What scripture teaches us is that God is the one who saves us. He sent his son Christ to die and come back from the dead so that we might be saved. So salvation is his work. So what do I do? What do I do in response to what he's done? What role do I play? And and listen, there's some good news here. I don't think this has to be confusing because what God wants from you is the same thing that he's always wanted from his creation from the very beginning. God wants you to worship him. That's all he's ever really wanted. God wants you to worship him. Our worship, though, is a response to his saving grace. It isn't a catalyst for it. We worship him because of what he's done. We can't get his grace. We can't get saved unless he gives it to us as a gift. That's what Ephesians says. That's what we looked at a few weeks ago, Ephesians 2. But that all said, the response of worship is critical. Because when Jesus is the object of our allegiance, when Jesus is the object of our devotion, it will lead us to perseverance through tough seasons. Which in scripture, in the New Testament, is seen as the true mark of faith. It's not just what do you think, it's not just what do you claim, it's do you endure? Do you endure? Do you continue? Do you persevere? The New Testament holds this up as the mark of true faith. It's not flash in the pan, it's not fly by night, it's not circumstantial, it's not I will worship God and love God and follow him as long as he gives me good gifts and as long as everything in my life is good. In fact, Jesus says, look guys, if you follow me, it's going to be the opposite. If you think they hated me, well, they're going to hate you for sure. Jesus says it's a narrow path. It's the harder way. Easy is the path that leads to death, is what he says. So, okay, perseverance, endurance, that is what the mark of our allegiance and devotion, our worship is. That's what it looks like. Answering this question about what we do is really important, though, because it helps us not only to understand our relationship to God, but I think it will also make us better at sharing his truth with other people sharing what's real and right and good. So imagine imagine if that was something you did well. Like how many of you feel like, man, I, I just, I do an awesome job at like sharing Jesus with other people. Listen, every statistic, every poll that you will find out there of Christian people says this is something we by and large don't do, even if we feel like we know how to do it, even if we feel like we know the right answers. Most people just don't. They just don't. But imagine if you did. Imagine if it was something you did well, and imagine if it was something you did often. Here's the deal. If we're not clear on this, we will not only be confused about what it looks like to actually follow Christ, but I think we can also unwittingly lead people to give themselves over to lesser things. We can ultimately lead people towards the very thing that Paul said was keeping many of the Jews in his day from Christ, which was self-righteousness. Trying to find my own righteousness. Trying to save myself in some way, shape, or form. Let's look at our text today, Romans 10, starting in verse 5. Moses writes this about the righteousness that is by the law. The person who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is, to bring Christ down. Or, Who will descend into the deep? That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning faith we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. And it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one whom they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they've not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not all the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ. But I ask, did they not hear? Of course they did. Their voice has gone out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. Again, I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you envious by those who are not a nation. I will make you angry by a nation that has no understanding." And Isaiah boldly says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. But concerning Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. It's the word of the Lord. So throughout this section of Romans, Paul has been primarily trying to answer a question about the Jews. If Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, like if he's come from the lineage of King David, we've talked about all of this. If he's the one that has been prophesied about in the Old Testament, if this is really the Messiah. And why is it that so many Jews don't believe in him and yet so many Gentiles who weren't privy to any of these prophecies about the coming Messiah, how come so many of these non-Jews do believe in him? That's one of the questions that he's been trying to answer in this section of Romans. And so he's been kind of unpacking for us why, in his perspective, there are many Jews that don't believe in Christ. And as he's been doing this, he's been teaching us what justification is all about. That's a big... Fancy theological word, but justification just means being made right before God, right? In Romans, what he has said is that because of our sin, because of our lack of righteousness, we are not right before God, right? Like we, if we just stand before him on our own, based on our own merits, based on how we've lived, what we've done, what we have and haven't said and thought and been... In our lives, if if it's just us that we're being judged on, none of us have any hope. You could be the greatest, the best, the most moral, the kindest person on earth. But yet before the holiness of God, before the perfection of God, none of us measure up. And so he's made this case and he's been teaching us what justification is all about. Jesus has come. And now God's righteousness through Christ... Because of his death and resurrection, he's paid the penalty for our sin. Because of that, God's righteousness through Christ is being given to us as a free gift. We can do nothing to earn it. And yet there are many people then and now who have clearly rejected it. The problem is not that they haven't heard it. The problem is that they don't believe it. Paul said of the Jews last week, this is verse 3 and 4 of chapter 10. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, their own righteousness, they didn't submit to God's righteousness. They didn't submit to what he has done through Christ. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Jesus is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. In other words, there was a time When righteousness was pursued through faithful obedience to the law. Like if you were going to be made right before God, then faithful obedience to the law was a part of that equation. But now Jesus is the end of the law. Now Jesus has fulfilled the law. It is over and done with. And so what do we do now? What do we do now? Paul's answer is we submit to God's righteousness through Christ. Or to put this another way, we submit to Jesus as our king. We lay our lives before him. We lay our possessions before him. We lay our wishes, our desires before him. Or or just in short, we obey him. And when you submit everything to a king, we have a word for that. And the word is worship. The word is worship. So, Paul begins this whole passage, Devin, if you'll go back to verse 6, Paul begins this whole passage by saying this, this kind of enigmatic thing. He says, but the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the, the dead. What? Like This sounds super strange. But yet, essentially, what Paul is saying is, look, you don't have to do something superhuman. You don't have to do something even supernatural. You don't actually have to do anything. Like, you don't have to go up and get a Messiah. You don't have to go, like, bring him back from the dead. That's God's work. God has already done all of that. God sent Christ, right? He sent him. And, and, and now he has brought him back. He has resurrected him. He's brought him back from the dead, So you don't have to do superhuman or supernatural things to be saved because this righteousness that we're talking about is based on faith, not on your works. Um, And God, he says, puts this faith inside you. It's, It's verse eight, it's in your mouth and it's in your heart. So what is the response of faith that is in your mouth and in your heart? The response is to one, confess it confess this truth that's in me, I declare what is true, I speak it to others, but then I also believe it in my heart. And when the scriptures talk about the heart, the scriptures are talking about the very core of your being. When they say, believe it in your heart, Paul isn't saying intellectually agree with it. He's not saying affirm it. He's not saying, oh oh yeah, tell other people, yeah, I believe that. I think it's true, he's saying believe it so fully and completely in the core of your being that it changes everything about your life. That's what it means to believe it in your heart, that it shapes you, that it molds you, that it changes your decision-making. It's not something I just think is true. It's not just something I I think will happen. I don't just intellectually or mentally assent to the reality of it. I believe it is so real that it has changed everything about how I view life and view the world. I believe it in my heart. Verse 10, for with the heart one believes and is justified. It's when we give everything over to him in faith, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Here's what we have to realize. This is not like a magic formula to, quote, get saved. It's not okay. You want to get saved. Here's what you do. You believe it in your heart. You confess it with your mouth. Poof, you're saved. No, 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 no. He's saying if this word of faith is in you, if it's in your mouth, then if it's real, then you will confess it. If it's real, you will build your life on it. You will allow it to become the orienting center of who you are if you submit to it. So this isn't some magic formula to get saved. We can't just get saved. Rather, Paul says we receive salvation from God. It's not a divine product. I think sometimes it's presented that way. It's not a divine product that the church peddles. I'm afraid that's how many of us maybe think about it. Here's this wonderful thing that can change your life, and here are all the things you need to do to get it. And then once you've got it, you're good to go. And what we all need to get better at is our sales pitch. We need to get better at telling people about it. Guys, I think the example of the New Testament is not simply that we need to get better at telling people about it. We need to get better at truly believing it in our heart, like, because that becomes our testimony, how we live our lives, not just what we say is true, because the reality is for many people, they look at the church, they look at Christians, and they go, I hear one thing and I see another thing, and so it invalidates the whole thing to me, right? But if I believe it in my heart, if it's becoming the orienting center for me, if my life is being shaped around it and formed by it, and then it's coming out of my mouth, then suddenly I kind of wake up and go, oh, okay, what's that all about? What Paul's actually doing here for us is he's describing for us what a life of worship looks like, a life of real worship. If Jesus is truly the object of your devotion and allegiance, you better believe you're gonna talk about it, right? But a true worshiper doesn't just talk about it, a true worshiper believes it at the center of their being. And notice it's this like whole body thing. It's this whole body thing, it's your mouth and your heart. And yet it, it it like draws my mind to think about the great commandment, which is what? Love the Lord your God with what? All your heart, mind, soul, strength, like the whole of your being. Jesus says, that's like if you want to sum things up, you want to sum up what God cares about, he says, you want to sum up the whole of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. It's that. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. If you start to get that, then you're really catching on. It's everything. It's not just what we think. It's not just what we give our money to. It's not just what we attend. No, no, no. If this is true, then it is shaping everything. It's not do these things and you will be saved. It's do these things because you have been saved. So when Paul says that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, this is his way of saying everyone who worships God in the way that I've described will be saved. If you believe this in your heart and you're confessing it with your mouth, then then guys, you're saved. You have a hope and a future. Look at verse 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And and how are they to believe in him in whom they've never heard? And and how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Do you remember Paul's experience? Do you you remember Paul's story? Do you know anything about that? So, So Paul is a Jew. He's a Pharisee, or was a Pharisee, which was a a sort of uh, uber-conservative orthodox sect within Judaism uh, during the time of the New Testament. So so these were kind of the Bible thumpers, to use kind of a modern term, of their day. They were the ones who were very concerned about the law and the rules and following things to a T, to the point where they had added a lot of rules and regulations to what God had handed down to Moses in the Old Testament. So they live these very strict, very devout lives of piety. That's what Paul comes out of when Jesus dies and is resurrected, and, and the early movement of Christianity begins. Paul is an opponent. Paul is involved in the murder of the very first martyr in the New Testament, Stephen. Paul is involved in trying to arrest Christians to bring them, probably ultimately, to their deaths. So Paul is an enemy of the church, but then something happens. And what happens? What happens is Jesus literally, like audibly stops him on a road. It's the road to Damascus. This is a place he was heading to. Jesus stops him in his tracks, speaks to him. Why are you persecuting me? He says to him. And he strikes him with blindness. So Paul has this intimate, uh, almost sort of violent, like just like what in the world just happened type experience. And it's with that experience that Paul comes to believe fully that, that the word of God heard is like critical in, in the work that God is doing. So so Paul definitely heard the word of Christ in the most literal sense on the road to Damascus. I mean, Jesus literally speaks to him on the road to Damascus. And, And he comes to believe that this is like an essential piece, that we need to hear the gospel. We need to hear the gospel. And his argument is simple here. He says, how can people worship something they don't believe in? They can't. How can people worship something they don't believe in? They can't. How can people believe in something they've never heard of? How will they hear about it unless someone tells them? How will someone tell them unless they're sent? So Paul's describing for us his life. He's going, this is what I've given myself over to. Like, I believe this so fully that this is now shaping everything that I am, everything that I do. Because I think it's important for people to hear the word of Christ. I think it's important for people to hear the gospel because how are they going to come to believe it if they don't hear it? So what I think Paul is saying there is, look, God can do anything. He's already made the case here in Romans that God is sovereign, God is all-powerful, God can do whatever he wants, wherever he wants, however he wants. Boy's saying here is what, what God has chosen to do is he has chosen to send people like you and me into our world with this word, this word of faith that is on our tongue, faith in Christ, that he has sent us into our world to declare it. Because how are people going to believe it if they don't hear it? How are they going to hear it if no one comes to them and tells them about it? It's a pretty logical argument, right? And he makes this classic statement, verse 17. So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. So he says, God, in in an almost mystical way, is using his word to implant faith in our lives. God is using his word through the power of his Holy Spirit to implant faith in our lives. And God puts this faith inside you, verse 8, in your mouth and in your heart. So what is the response of faith? Paul says you confess it, you believe it. So do you have these moments? Like Justin was talking about earlier, being camping and looking around and seeing people and going, hmm. What about in your neighborhood? What about in your workplace? What about with your coworkers? Do you know their story? If you're somebody who claims Christ, what does it look like for you to share that truth with them? What does it look like for you to live that truth around them? Friends, Paul is calling us to faithful worship of Jesus. the whole of our lives. He could say, well, you know, most of the Jews have rejected this, so I guess it's just a lost cause. But the reality was most of the Jews had not heard it at this point in time. I mean, Christianity was this marginalized sect. And they were persecuted. And he's saying, listen, if you worship God, if you've experienced his gift of grace, recognize that at some point you heard the word of Christ. How did you If you're a believer, how did you, quote unquote, get saved? I'm going to bet, I'm going to bet that at some point you heard the truth of who Christ is and what he's done. And that God used that in your life to shape you, to shape your thinking, to shape what's in your heart. And you heard because another believer was faithful to declare it to you. And if we're going to be obedient to Christ, and because we have no clue who will be saved or not, we must also go and declare the truth of the gospel. Because how how are people going to believe it if they haven't heard it? How are they going to hear it if we don't declare it with our mouths? And how are we going to declare it with our mouths if we don't believe it in our heart? If it's not shaping the whole of our lives? I'll close with this. Think of the parable of the sower in Matthew. Do y'all know that parable? It says a sower went out and just scattered seed, like a farmer. Just goes out and starts scattering seed. And, and the parable describes all the different types of soil that the seed falls on. So it falls on some fertile soil. It falls on some infertile soil. It falls on some soil where it's like, oh, I think it's fertile. But there's no depth to the soil. And so whatever springs up quickly ultimately dies. In the parable of the sower, as the seed falls in all of these various places never does it really indicate that the quality of the soil is the purview of the sower or the responsibility of the sower. Rather, what it indicates is the responsibility of the sower is to scatter the seed as he goes, as she goes. I think one of the things this is pointing us towards is the fact that God is the one who creates fertile soil. But our role, and we very much have a role, our role In this is to be faithful to sow seed as we go, as we live life. So I want to just ask you guys, who is like one person in your life? Who's one person in your life who you need to intentionally share the gospel with? Like if this is not a part of your rhythm, if you say, man, I believe it in my heart, But yet there's no part of your rhythm where you're actually sharing Christ with other people. Who is somebody in your life that comes to your mind that that maybe even God's putting on your mind right now? You could write their name down. Who is that person for you? And, And like when, when can you share the truth with them? Because if you believe in your heart that these things are true, then the most unloving thing that we could possibly do for people around us is to not share it with them. Like if this is what is real, if this has changed everything for you, if this has changed your life and your future, then the most unloving thing we could ever do is not share it with other people. Do You guys follow me? That makes sense? God wants you to worship him. And unfortunately, when we hear that word worship, I think a lot of us just think that it means singing some songs. God values that. God desires that. But do you know that the scripture says God doesn't even want to hear your songs if it doesn't come from a heart that is devoted to him? He's not really interested in it. So worship is something more than just singing. Scripture is clear that God wants us to confess with our mouths and align the posture of our hearts with what is true of Christ. True worship is submission. True worship is allegiance to the king. And as true worshipers, we are sent with the truth of a king and his coming kingdom. If we've heard the gospel and been changed, how could we ever not give someone else the opportunity to hear This week, make a plan for sharing what Christ has done in your life with one person around you. Is it scary? Yeah, sometimes it's scary. Do you know that it's going to be successful? No, you don't. Right? But again, the quality of the soil is not the purview of the sower. That's God's work. Let God do his work. What's your role? My role is to do what he's called me to do because it has come to shape everything about me. Let's believe in our hearts, confess it with our mouths, and see what God does as we seek to submit our lives to him. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your truth. And God, I'm the first to confess that I don't understand everything about you. Often I don't know why you do some things and not do other things, and and yet, Lord, in my heart, my desire is to trust you in all things. Even when things are unclear, if you are God, if you are the creator of all things, and I have to believe that there is mystery surrounding you. That if I am your creation, if I am finite, then there are always going to be things about you that I don't fully get. But I pray, God, that you would open my mind and heart and, and the minds and hearts of those who are in this room to submit the whole of our lives to you. Not just our Sunday mornings, Not just some things we claim, but truly everything. What we have, who we are, what we desire. God, may all of that be on the table for us. So that our response of worship might seek to give you the glory and honor that you are due for what you have given us through Christ. We love you, Jesus. We thank you for your, for your word. It's in your name we pray. Amen.